I was I was meeting with a number of pastors uh, this week on uh, Thursday. We got a group of pastors that are doing like we're doing like this preaching kind of group. We meet every couple months and talk about preaching and how to be better preachers and things like that. And um, so one of the guys was saying like parts of his process was to identify the problem in the text. And uh, and what is the problem that this text is addressing every Sunday? What's the problem that the text is speaking to? And for the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's kind of an interesting question because in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're, we're confronted basically with the same problems every week. And, and, and the problems that we're confronted with in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're confronted with the problems of the reality of life. And the way that I've introduced the book to you, I think there's really four problems that we're introduced to and and kind of two concrete things that lead us into these four problems. So, the, remember what the two concrete things were? The first concrete, that's not really concrete, but the first kind of image or picture that we're given is that idea of the breath, the habel, the breath of life. And I talked about there's, there's really two problems that we experience with the breath of life. The first problem is life, if you remember, just kind of, if you took notes, I got you that little booklet, so you should be able to flip back and actually see this, but the first problem that we were confronted with when we come to this book of Ecclesiastes and the first problem we're confronted with as we reflect on our life is this fleeting quality of life. The life is over before we know it. That, like I say as a parent, like you just were changing your kids' diapers and now you're sending them off to college. And you're like, I don't feel old, but where did the time go? Right? Like, my goodness. I'm 42. Where'd that come from? I don't know. Um, so the fleetingness of life. And again, the, the second idea of the problem of that, that breath is the, that life is fleeting, it's over so fast, and it's perplexing. It's, it's enigmatic, like we can't pin it down, we can't figure life out. Even the longer we live and you think we become wiser, life becomes almost more perplexing and more confusing. And so those are the two concepts associated with this idea of, of breath. Right, that, that life is short and we can't figure it out. And then, I, and then I had brought up that dish as well because Ecclesiastes chapter one had brought up the problem of the dishiness of life, is what I call it, the dishiness of life. And there's two problems there. The, the first problem with the dishiness of life is that life is is this short life that we live is filled with monotony. That is wearisome. So I brought up that problem of the dishes being like, man, we know life is short, and I spend, you know, an hour a week doing these dishes, and I spend another hour a week waiting for the bus, and I spend another hour of the week in line at the grocery store, and I've got to do the same thing every week and every month and every year of my life. And this, this life is over like that, and I spend most of my time in wearisome monotony, and the final problem he brings up in, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is that it's just not satisfying. He says, all the rivers run to the sea and the sea's never full, but the sea doesn't mind. But we mind. Like, we are never finding satisfaction in this weariness of life, in this monotony of life, in this fleetingness of life, and in this, you know, hard to pin downness of life. We, we, we're not satisfied with it. And so those are the problems that Ecclesiastes is addressing. And, and last week we saw how Solomon tried to, um, what he tried to do with these problems, and what he did, and we talked about last week, was he set in front of us, he set his life 
in front of us as almost like he took his life and made it a research project. So Solomon is, is, is looking realistically into this breath, and he's saying, can there be any gain that can be extracted from this vapor, this mist, this breath of my life? And he set himself out, and he said that he was uniquely qualified to do it. God had given him wisdom to do it. God had given him position to do it. God had given him resources to do it. God had given him success to be able to do it. And he lived the life that many of us dream that we can live. He lived a life of prosperity, right? He lived a life of pleasure. He lived a life of success and putting his stamp and making his mark on things. He lived a life of significance. And all these things that we dream that would be our life, he lived it on our behalf. Right? They say, uh, they say a wise person learns from his mistakes. A wiser person learns from somebody else's mistakes. Right? And so Solomon's saying, I will live this life for you, and I will, I'm uniquely positioned to see if I can extract any good out of this life, living as I would, life for its own ends. And he could not. He could not, and he learned that there was absolutely nothing that could be gained. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? This is his conclusion. All his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, and night his heart does not rest, and it all is breath. That was his conclusion. From his search, from his lifelong pursuit, there's a research project that he he, he performed for our behalf. He said, it is not, you are not going to be able to extract anything of lasting eternal value, anything of, of true good. You will not be able to do it. And the phrase that he uses again and again is, it is like a shepherding the wind. Try to take that breath and try to extract good from it, and you're not able to do it. And so the implication of his project was this. In 2.24, the implication was that if anybody's going to experience, if anyone is going to experience true and lasting joy, it has to come from something. In fact, it has to come from someone outside of himself. It's got to come from someone outside of this of this breath world. If there's nothing under the sun that can be truly gained to us, and if this life is to mean anything, that meaning, that purpose that joy has to become from beyond. So Solomon's counsel in 2.24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. His counsel is that we must learn to receive all things as a gift from the hand of God. Now, if you're, if you're here last week and you're kind of tracking with us last week, it might have almost seemed jarring that suddenly in, in, in uh, verse 24, so, suddenly Solomon's talking about God. Right? He brings up God like three times in those verses. And it seems, it may have seemed a bit jarring last week because until this point in Ecclesiastes, until this point in, in Solomon's argument, God has hardly been mentioned at all. In fact, in chapter 2, that was the first mention of God. 
But even into chapter 1, God's only mentioned like one time, and, and, and in that, even that mention, in Ecclesiastes 1.13, God is, God is this kind of God who has given to mankind this unhappy business. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy, busy with. So, so, so Solomon, as he started his research project, he believed in God, but I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what his perspective on God was. It seems from chapter 1, verse 13, Solomon's perspective would be more akin to something like what we call deism, which is the idea that, that God kind of wound up the universes and God kind of, kind of created the parameters for our lives and then kind of left us on our own. That he gave the children of man this unhappy business that we are to contend and toil with, but, but he kind of left us to figure it out. And so Solomon, as he was wrestling on his search, he realizes this, this, he, re, he comes to reject, I think, that view of God. He, he comes to see that there, there's gotta be something more that God is doing in this creation. And so when he, when he gets to chapter uh, 2, verse 24, it's not that Solomon is rejecting completely a secular view of life. I doubt that Solomon was a secularist. I don't think there were many ancient people who were secular in the way that modern Canadians consider. But I think what Solomon has learned through his search last week was that God is more active. God is more near. God is more intimately connected with our lives than what he had initially considered. It's not just that God set up your life and just said, ha, 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 kid, figure it out. It's that God is actually here. He's actually with us. He's actually near. He's actually intimately connected to your life. And that, that answer is what blows his soul open in 2.24, that there's not a good in us that, that we can find pleasure and enjoyment in this toil ourselves, but we must receive joy and wisdom and knowledge from God's hand. And that's where we stopped last week. And so as we start into chapter 3, Solomon is going to press this argument he's making further by describing the activities of God in our world. And so this is a key section. In the entire book of Ecclesiastes, and it should be clear that Solomon's argument, his argument, I hope by now it's clear that Solomon's argument is not that everything is meaningless or that everything is futile. That, that search or our striving might be, but life itself can't be because, because God, this picture we get in chapter 3 particularly is that God is this, um, he's this masterful conductor who knows where every note in the orchestra should be doing. And he's, he's directing the entire orchestra in a beautiful symphony, a beautiful way. And, and that he sets every event and season in all of our lives together for his purposes. That it's not the work of an absent, disinterested God, but of the God who's intimately involved in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment unfolding of our lives. And so the key idea of this section, and, and, and just the thought I want to leave you to meditate, to reflect on this morning, is this. Every moment of our lives is appointed by God. And therefore, because of that, 
There is beauty in the brow. There is beauty in to be found in this breath of life. There's beauty even in the breath that you take because every moment of our lives is appointed by God. That's, that's my prayer, that you just go home and reflect on that for this next while. Every moment of our lives is appointed by this God. And because of God's appointing of every moment in our life, there's beauty in, in, each, in each breath, and there's beauty to be found in this breath of life. So let's just go quickly as, as we look at this, every moment of our lives is appointed. One of these, this famous verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, For everything there is a season, and for every time there's a matter under heaven. How many of you guys like the oldies, right? And you listen to the, the oldie Derek. I knew oldie Derek raised his hand. For everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time for every purpose under heaven. There was this old song in the 60s that basically just sang the words of Ecclesiastes. Came number, number one hit. But for everything, there's a season, every time there's a matter under heaven. Just these, these two things I want you to see in this verse, that God's care and his appointing of the moments of our lives are, 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 are first meticulous or detailed, that, that every single detail, every moment, and he not only talks about the seasons of our lives being appointed, but the times, meaning the, the particular moments of every one of our lives has been appointed by God. That every moment, not just every season of our lives, but every moment is part of God's providential concern for us, and that every moment, this is comprehensive, that there's no part of our lives, there's no matter under heaven that is not under God's care. Nothing escapes God. I, I am not a detail-oriented person. In the least, and it drives my family crazy, and it probably drives you guys crazy. God is a detail-oriented God. He, 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 in His providential care of all that has happened in each one of our, our lives, your lives and mine, He's meticulous, He's detailed about the times and the seasons He's appointed for you, and He's comprehensive. In fact, by the end of the chapter, He says, God shepherds those moments. He, uh, by the by, by, um, by chapter 3, verse 15, the, the, the section we read today closed, and God seeks what has been driven away, meaning God is shepherding all of the moments under his providential care. And he, for Solomon, the way he conveys his truth is again through this poem, and it's one of the most famous poems that ever written. You know, it could be called an ode to providence. And the, the, this poem, there's a time to live, there's a, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And again, I don't, I don't think it really helps us. I'm not going to do what I've read in some commentaries that go through each one of these moments and talk about the significance of each one of these moments. I don't, I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing with poetry, number one. But, but, I, but I do think it helps us 
I, I do think it helps us to, to make some observations about the whole entirety of the poem. And, and, and at first, this poem, if you notice, this poem, it, it speaks to the all-encompassing picture of life. So just that first line, that there's a time to be born and a time to die, it, it, what, what basically is, that's the first thing given in this poem because it covers everything else. It covers everything else. So this is a poem that is dedicated to describing the life of an individual and he's saying that your whole life, from the moment you're conceived, from the moment you're born, to the moment you die, this is all part of that meticulous, comprehensive, providential care of God. All the other things fall into the category of, between the time of being born and the time of dying. If you look here quickly at the poem, you'll see that some of these things in this poem include things that we would naturally see as trials, things that we wouldn't want to be part of our life, and things that we would naturally see as joys. Obviously, the things like, if there's a time to mourn. We, we as human beings generally don't embrace those times of mourning. We would rather have the times of rejoicing and the times of dancing, right? But the, So the poem actually speaks to things in our life that would be trials, and things speaks to things of our life that we would see as, as good, as joys. That there's, there's some things in the poem that are that are obviously morally complex, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to go to war, and a time to have peace. So there's obviously parts to this poem that are speaking about there's some moral quandaries of life, and then there's other parts of the poem that don't seem to be morally quand moral quandaries at all. What does it mean, a time to like stack up stones and time to like tear them down? You're not a bad person if you stack up stones, or you're not a bad person if you tear them down. It just seems like there's just times and seasons of our life that bring about change. There are times where there are times where we will take natural resources and use them to build things, and there are times where those things that we built will, will come down because we're building new stuff in their place. It's not a moral statement about it; it's just a fact of life. Change, transition, is a fact of life. And so the poem describes these activities, but it's not like it gives commentary to them. It's not evaluating them as good or bad or wise or foolish or righteous or sinful. We could look into those, but it's not the concern. Solomon is only describing the seasons of life. He's not he's not prescribing what we should do. Like, you're not one of the commentators he moves. He said, like, we're not supposed to read this and be like, there's a time to kill. Thank you, God. I got my word for the day. Like, that's not what we're going to do with this. No, not at all. Right? He's not prescribing any course of action. It's not a license to kill. But, but, but it is to be noticed, there doesn't seem to be any progression to these sets of pairs. It's almost like these, it's almost like this poem, except for the first line and maybe the last, everything else almost seems to come at random. And, and that seems to be a pretty good description of life. Alright, All right, so I got this uh, guy, my college roommate. He was ridiculous. He was a he was an electrical engineer. Engineers in the house, we got some engineers. You guys are interesting. I'll say that. But but we we laughed at my friend Ken. His name is Ken because Ken sat down his junior year of college, like his third year of university, and he was like, "I've got my life figured out. I'm going to begin uh, this semester. I'm going to date a bunch of girls. By Christmas, I'm going to choose one. 
this spring, we're going to get closer, and by the beginning of summer, I'll invite her to meet my family. We'll continue to date through the summer and the fall. I'll invite her to homecoming over Christmas break next year. We'll get engaged, and then the next summer, we'll get married at the beginning of the summer, and then move to Baltimore, Maryland, where we'll both be, where, well, where I'll start my job at Lockheed Martin. And my, and my friend, my other roommate, and I just laughed. Like, we were like, you can't do that. We just laughed at him. We said, that's not how life works. Because life doesn't come with this linear progression where you have everything figured out and everything matches your plan. And so we just laughed at him. Life comes more like this, this Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where we don't know what the times and the seasons will be next. We don't know when it's going to be a time of mourning or a time of laughing or a time of weeping or a time of dancing or a time of war or a time of peace. So we laughed at him. Now, for him, it was amazing because it actually happened exactly as he said it would. <laughs> He's the only person in all of my experience that that has ever happened to him. I, and, and God was good to him for some reason. I don't know. God knew he was an engineer and he needed special help, I guess. Wow. But, but life usually doesn't work like that. Usually doesn't look like that. We, we, the seasons are ever changing, and you may be in a time of mourning now, but it's a good thing that life is a breath because if you're in a time of mourning or a time of pain or a time of trial, this idea that life is fleeting and a breath, that's actually good news. It's actually good news when you're facing a trial or a season in your life and you go to God and you say, God, I believe and I trust in you and I believe that this too shall pass. But it's also kind of healthy to have that same outlook when you're experiencing a time of pleasure in your life or a time of joy in your life. And you know, God, I will take this from your hand as well. And I also know that this may be fleeting and that this too may pass. This is like Job. This is the wisdom literature where he gets Job where he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he said to his friend, Shall I take, shall I accept good from the Lord and not evil? Shall, shall I, I should just take what the Lord gives me. And this is the outlook that Solomon gets to. There are times and seasons of our life. There's a whole bunch of different times and seasons of our life. And they're all appointed by this God who loves us. It's all appointed by this God who hates us. Care. He cares for his creators or creation, and he cares for his creatures. And, and this is where he goes, where, where Solomon goes. He says, "This, this is the point. There's beauty in the breath." So he goes back to this question in verse nine. He's asked this question twice before already in this book. This is the third time he's asked it, but the first two times he's asked it like he's a deist. Like, God just wound this up and let us be. And so the first couple times he asked this question, he's like, what game is there? Nothing. It's a chasing after a wind. But now he's had his perspective changed. And so now he asks the same question. What, what gain has the worker from his toil? And now listen to his answer after having reflected on the meticulous and comprehensive providence of God. His answer has changed completely. What gain is there? And working for his toil, and he says this, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And here's his answer. He has made everything beautiful in his time. When he begins to see that God has appointed every time and season, that is when he's able to see the beauty for which God is working, and that God is working into every time and season. 
It's a complete matter of perspective change. He has now seen it, and his answer after reflecting on this meticulous comprehensive providence of God is that God has made all things and is making all things beautiful in his time. So now you understand, this, this is now why you understand why I named this series Breathtaking. It's that play on words. It's that habal that, that you go through your life taking these breaths and your life is nothing but this breath. But, yeah, yeah, if you try to extract something from the breath itself, it'll slip through your fingers like a shepherding after the wind. But if you actually look at it, if you just simply look at your life as this gift of God that God is meticulously and comprehensively caring for with His providence, then you see the beauty in the breath and your life becomes breathtaking. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It blows your mind when you begin to consider all that God is doing. This, this, this word breathtaking probably, in context, probably means beautifully fitting. Like, like you begin to see how your life beautifully fits together under the care and direction of God's providence. And so, so we can't grasp, we can't, we, we cannot extract any good from our life. But it is that God, the Creator, is making all things beautiful in His time. And so this is part of the answer. This is, this is, I would, I would say this is the main answer the book of Ecclesiastes, the Ecclesiastes gives us, that Solomon gives us. That when we stop striving after life, seeking to extract gain from it, that we'd be able to receive every moment, that we'd be able to receive every breath as a gift from God's hand and see the beauty of every moment as it is set into the plan of God. That's the perspective of the book. That's the answer the book gives. That when we stop seeking to extract good and pleasure and enjoyment out of life, but instead we open up our hands and receive from God that wisdom, knowledge, and enjoyment that he spoke of last week. And we begin to see the beauty of every moment as it's set into the plan of God. See, the idea that life is a breath, if you take one perspective, life is over, it's fleeting, it's confusing, it'll be done. You could then come come through life saying, it's all meaningless, it's going to be over. That's not what Solomon is counseling us to do. Solomon is actually saying a different thing. If you see life being fleeting and it's over like that, what that actually means is that there is a beauty and an urgency in every single moment because life is fleeting. Because life is fleeting, every moment matters. Because life is fleeting, but because we know this God who's directing history and is is sovereign over his creation, because life is fleeting, we actually can see and look into and peer into every moment to see what God is doing. That's the perspective Solomon's urging us to see. That life is breathtaking. It's Solomon's way of saying the truth that's proclaimed in the New Testament as well. In Romans 8.28, Paul writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And he goes on and speaks about the plan, of God's plan of salvation in the lives of an individual, how he, he foreknew us and he predestined us and he, he justified us and then he sanctified us and he, he has glorified us and that the end is sure from the beginning. That he's working his purposes out in the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And he goes on to say, 
What sort of things? Well, these sorts of things. These sorts of things for the believer are part of that breath of life that God is working good out of, that God is making beautiful. And they're not things that we would normally choose. Things like, in verse 5, tribulation, or 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. These are the things that God reveals to work that he works for good. And these are the things that he's making beautiful in his time. Now there's a couple frustrations with this. I wish I could just proclaim God is making everything beautiful in his time, but there are some frustrations that we experience with this. Two of them. There's two frustrations primarily. We can't see how everything is fitting together and we try to force God's hand. So, so we can't see... Here's a frustrating part about this. Yes, God is making all things beautiful in this time, but we want to see what He is doing. We want to, under, we wish we could see from His picture how He is making everything beautiful in this time. And we are frustrated because we, we, we believe that God is working everything to be beautiful in this time. We believe that God is working everything for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We believe that God does have a plan, that he is superintending history in our lives toward it. But we're frustrated because we cannot see the end from the beginning. We want to see how it all fits together, but we can't. Ecclesiastes 3.9, he's making all things beautiful in this time, yet also he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. And that's the frustrating point. The frustrating point is... There's something within us. There's there's a knowledge that Romans chapter 1 speaks of this knowledge of God and of his sovereign power and of his wisdom that God has even revealed to us through creation so that every human heart knows that there must be a God superintending creation. Yet we suppress that truth, that eternality in our heart, that God has, that God has placed in our heart, the knowledge of God that is within us, we suppress it. And the problem with it is though we know that our lives mean something and have and are working towards something, we cannot know what that is. We cannot see the end from the beginning. And, and so that's the frustration. The seemingly random matters of your life are not random. And you, and you come to trust and believe that God has a plan and intent for every moment, but we can't figure out what God is doing because we can't see the end from the beginning. The limit of man's knowledge, the limit of our sphere, of our perspective, is a major theme in Ecclesiastes. And the purpose for exposing that reality is to drive us to trust God. The purpose for putting eternity in our heart but limiting our field of scope is so that we might trust God. That, that we might that we might search and to seek what he is doing. It's, it's this, this idea that I, as a parent, I know more of what our family's plans are going to be than our kids. And, and, and why we do certain things than our kids. And the kids ask, why, 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 why? And, and I don't reveal to them all the time all the reasons why. And, and, and so this frustrates us because there are some of us who, who say, God, why did you allow this to happen in my life? God, why am I experiencing this right now? God, why are you putting me through this season right now? 
God, why, why are you giving me this time of mourning? God, why are you doing this to me? Why do I have to go through this persecution or pain or famine or sword or sickness or trial? And we don't know. But he has put eternity in our heart that we might see that he is doing something even though we cannot see the end from the beginning. And this is where Solomon counsels us to just, that's why we receive from his hand. Our second frustration is that we want, here's our second frustration, we we want to force God's hand. We want to force God's hand toward, we, we don't want to trust God that he is leading our lives towards something. We want to force his hand toward our own desires, toward our own ends. And again, this is where the futility comes in the book. This is where this is where the frustration, the futility, the vexation comes in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says that his answer, I'm oh, sorry, his answer in three fourteen is I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. God seeks what's been driven away. And the point here is that God is the active driver of history. God is the one in the, with the steering wheel in his hand, and we are his passengers. And as much as we want to wrestle that steering wheel away from him, you know, God, take this exit. He's not giving up the steering wheel. We've got to give up our grasping of it. He's the one who sits in the driver's seats of our life, and it's interesting because we spoke a lot about God's providence, didn't we, in, when we did the Patriarch series in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, particularly in the life of Joseph, we talked about how, how God's providence was meticulous and directed in, in his purpose and his plan, and that was through the life of this unfolding of this, these promises made to this family where God was moving along his story of redemption. And so in Genesis, God's providence like cares for and superintends that activity he's doing to bring about salvation. In Ecclesiastes, we're here still talking about God's providence and the sovereignty, but it's in a completely different context. It's through kind of the stuckness of our life. It's through the vexation and the and, the, and like where we don't see things going anywhere. And so Genesis kind of proclaims God as providence over His unfolding plan, and Ecclesiastes kind of proclaims, yeah, God is is providence. His sovereignty and his providence over those parts of our life that don't seem to be part, like they're part of God's plan at all. And so we this is where we trust God by setting ourselves under his hand. This is the fear of the Lord that he speaks about at the end of the book, and he speaks about in this chapter, that we see God for who he is, and we see us for who we are. And we revere and trust him. We fear God when we see God for who he is. And we see us ourselves for who we are. And we learn to trust, honor, and respect him. This is the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. And actually that's the key to alleviating the frustrations of life. Trapped between time and this existence and eternity. It doesn't mean that Solomon's suggesting that we be passive. Like he, he, he concludes kind of in this section the same thing he concluded in chapter 2. This doesn't mean that we're just passive and we just say, well, God, you're going to do what you do. This is how he, he counsels us. I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live 
and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And, and so the person who's living this good life that Solomon's urging us to live, there's an active way to live. There's an active way to live under God's hand of providence. And the active way to live is first, live joyfully. Second, live righteously. Do good. And third, live with gratitude to receive all food and drink as labor to be as gifts to take pleasure in. And, and that's what we mean by taking and seeing the beauty in every moment. Taking joy, devoting yourself to doing good and receiving all things with gratitude from God's hands. And I think of what does this look like? And I think I would have to meditate on the Gospels to see what this would look like in the life of Jesus. Like Jesus lived a life and Jesus was a man of joy. In the Gospel of John particularly as he's leaving his disciples and the last words to his disciples, he says twice to them, my joy I leave with you. And they knew what he was talking about. And they knew that Jesus was a, was a, was a man of joy. They, they knew that Jesus was a man who all his life, he sought the Father's will as he actively did good toward others, as he practically loved others, as he practically set people free, as he practically healed others, as he practically showed compassion to others. He was doing active good. In fact, that's how Luke, that's how Peter in Luke uh, chapter 10, describes Jesus' ministry. Jesus went about doing good under God's hand. He said, I do what the Father tells me to do. I do what I see the Father showing me to do. So he is joyful. He did good. And he didn't waste moments, but he used moments to love God and love people. And Jesus understood the anointed or appointed times and seasons of his life. And he accepted them as from the Father, as the Holy Spirit enabled him to discern the Father's will. So, a lot of times in the Gospels, Jesus will say things like, my hour has not yet come. There's a time where he says, the, the time has now appointed me to go to, up to Jerusalem. So Jesus was seeking the Father's will in all things. He was seeking the Father's timing in all things of his life. The greatest temptation, I, I believe, the greatest temptation in Jesus' life was to wrestle the steering wheel from his Father and, and to... And to, and to come into his glory without going through the cross. When the Spirit led him out into the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days. That was the gist of many of those temptations. Go up to the top of the temple and throw yourself down and you'll receive that sort of acclaim from men. Immediately. You don't need to go through the cross. He takes him to the highest mountain and he says, all the kingdoms of the earth I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, Depart from me, saying, you shall love, you shall, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God only. When he's in the garden wrestling, Father, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So I believe the greatest temptation in Jesus' life was to seek the glory without going through the moment of the cross. But it was through the cross, through that moment of pain, through that moment of mourning, through that moment of pouring himself out, the toil of the cross that God was pleased to offer salvation to all who would turn to him in faith and repentance. It was foreordained, it was appointed that Jesus would go to Jerusalem, be handed over to sinful men, be opposed and mocked and scorned and tortured, unjustly sentenced and executed. 
for the salvation of the world. God had appointed the times and seasons for Jesus. He appointed them so that now a, a way, an offer of salvation could be made in the cross of Christ. That if anyone should repent of their sins, turning to him in faith and repentance, we will receive forgiveness of sins in his name. God used the times and the seasons in Jesus' life, and Jesus willingly sought the times and the seasons that the Father had appointed. So what does this look like in our life? How do we see the beauty in this breath? i got seven things I'll just go, these are just suggestions. The first is just pray. If you have difficulty finding the beauty, if you, if you, particularly if you struggle with the anxiety, um, difficulty finding the beauty in the moments of your life, Pray, pray, pray. Sometimes you just got to get away from the noise. Find a quiet place. Jesus would do this. He'd withdraw to a quiet place. Find a quiet place. Quiet your heart before the Lord and pray and ask God to show you the beauty in what he is doing in the moment. And, and that's what I would say. Just pray and ask God to show you the beauty of what, of where is he in this moment. Heavenly Father, show me right now. I cannot see right now. I'm perplexed with this breath of life right now. I'm perplexed with the season that you've led me into. Father in heaven, please show me right now. What are you doing? Where are you in this? Where's the beauty? How is this going to be part of your plan? He may not reveal that to you. He probably won't. But what we're doing in that moment is you're actually turning your eyes off of what is happening in your life. You're turning it to him that you may receive wisdom and knowledge and joy from his hand. And, and so if you're struggling with anxiety, particularly this might be a discipline that you need to cultivate. Just pausing to pray, to breathe in and breathe out and see the beauty in each breath. But the second thing would be gratitude. Cultivating gratitude. This can be so transformational in our life as we, as we consider the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. is literally walking through life, seeking to cultivate gratitude with every breath you're taking. So I was doing this, I was meditating on the book of Ecclesiastes, and I was going to the gym at the Y a couple of blocks away, and I'm walking home from the gym, and I've been listening to the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly this chapter. And I'm walking home, and I'm just like, I want to cultivate this gratitude that he's talking about in this book. So I'm walking home, and, and it's Canada, right? So as I'm breathing, I can see my breath going in and out, right? And I'm going, God, show me the beauty in every moment. God, thank you for this moment. And I'm just praying like that. I'm just kind of being grateful. And then I, I go to Loblaws, and it was right before Christmas. And so I walk in the lavas and finally I take this big breath and there's that pine smell from all the Christmas trees. And it was just, it just hit me. And I was like, and I, suddenly I was just filled with gratitude and joy. And I was like, God, you are so good. This is such a good smell. And then I walk in the lavas. The first thing you hit is the bread section. I can't even eat the bread, right? But I, I walk into the bread section. I'm like, God, this is so good. God, I'm so grateful to live in a country that has abundance and that I'm, you know, where we have access to this sort of food. I'm just walking, and I must have looked like the biggest ridiculous freak walking around the grocery store. Because I'm walking around with like a huge smile on my face. And it just started by like breathing in and out and thanking God for every moment and every breath. So cultivate, you know, cultivating gratitude. That's what this book of Ecclesiastes is about. Third, I would say reflect every now and then. Because when you're in the moments, it's impossible for us. When we're in the moments, we can't see the end from the beginning. When we're in the moments, it's so perplexing to try to figure out our lives. But every so often, take some time and reflect 
of what God has done in your life and how he has brought you to the place where you're at. Take a mini retreat, take an hour someday and just journal and say, God, thank you for what you have done and how you have led me here. Through even the doors that closed, through even the sicknesses that happened, through even the struggles and the trials that I faced. Because I know I'm going to face some more tomorrow, God. So show me already in my life how you have used those moments and those hard and difficult things in my life. Use those to show me, God, how you brought me here and what you've taught me through them. Take some time to reflect on what God has actually done and show you in his life. The fourth is appreciate. Like, this is, I guess this is the discipline I want to do better in my life. Like, tell God and tell the people around you how much you are thankful to God for them. And thank God. This is what this is what Paul did often in his letters to the church. I thank God upon every remembrance of you, remembering you with joy at all times in my prayer for you. That's how he starts his letter to the Philippians, right? Paul would appreciate the people who God had put in his path. He'd appreciate, he'd, he'd cultivate different from the sense of gratitude, but he'd, he'd show appreciation by trust. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you are striving against him and what things you need to give over to him. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where am I trying to rip that steering wheel of your hand, God? Where am I trying to force things? Where am I trying to force you, God, into my will rather than saying, no, 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 not my will, but yours be done, God. Six, live out acts of love and goodness as an expression of the gift of God in Jesus Christ. This is what we talked about last week where it said he saved us not because of the righteous acts that we have done, but he saved us. Through his good work, through the work of Jesus Christ, our salvation has been secured in him. And so there's nothing that we are doing that we can strive to earn or to force God's love. He demonstrated his love for us in this, that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so when we live our lives as people who have received grace, we live our lives no longer slaves to fear, but as children of God. How great... Behold, my brother and sister, what matter of love the Father has passed on to us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. If you're truly a child of God, if you truly know Jesus Christ, there's no service or good work that you can do to make God love you more. However, he's given to us the gift of the joy of serving him, of loving him, and of loving others. And so you actually can love one another and serve your neighbor and love your neighbor out of joy and not out of fear of condemnation. It's so much of a different manner and motive for service. It's just simply because you've been so grateful for what God has done for you in Christ that you can show that love and share it with others. And seventh, there's a weird thing to say in a church. Enjoy life. There's not a hedonistic joy I'm not talking about, obviously. You know, Ecclesiastes said, to the one who pleases him. He says again in this chapter, for the one who fears God and does what is right. 
does not enjoy life by going out and doing whatever you think is going to bring desire. If you do that, that's going to be the shepherding the wind that's going to lead you to sorrow and vexation. But this is enjoying life, receiving all things from God's hand. It's receiving your bread, receiving your drink, receiving your job, your toil as gifts from his hand. And enjoying it. There's a time for dancing. There's a time for singing. There's a time for joy that God gives us these times and seasons in life to enjoy. It's a different... It, 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 this is this is where I, I believe that there is, as, as the, the author of Solomon said last week, when he said he, when he stopped focusing on the what, on, on the what can be extracted from life, when he started focusing on the who, who is truly enjoying life as a gift from God's hand. And that's where he comes on the end, as the one who fears him. To the one who fears him, the one who does what is good, the one who pleases him, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. It's a completely different way to live. If you're here today and you're struggling with that, I mean, that's my prayer for you, that you just take it this week and just meditate on this. Breathe in, breathe out, pray, cultivate gratitude, appreciate those around you, do good and love others, and, and, and praise Jesus in all of this. Let's pray.